Thanks for all of you who came today to this final university colloquium of the academic year and uh, chose not to be outside at the women's lacrosse game instead. Um, we're pleased to welcome uh, Professor Daniel King. He goes by Danny um, as our colloquium speaker today. Uh, Danny uh, finished his PhD in theoretical and applied mechanics at the University of Illinois in 2012, and he's been a faculty member here ever since in physics and engineering. In fact, he was one of the founding members of our uh, engineering program, so he's a groundbreaker. Uh, he's done a lot, uh, I, I was looking at his CV today and impressed at the range of classes he's taught, everything from algebra and the environment to advanced thermodynamics. So he does a little bit of everything. Um, he's also uh, has a long list of uh, published articles and conference presentations, particularly on his research on microbubbles. I don't think we're going to be hearing about microbubbles today, but you can ask him about that during the, during the reception at the end. So Danny, welcome. Thanks, Fred, and uh, thank you all for coming. Can you hear me okay? The microphone's doing good? All right. Well, yes, uh, uh, as, as was stated, I'm not here to talk about microbubbles today, but I'm here to talk about uh, old experiments and uh, some of the work that I uh, did on my uh, sabbatical, which was last year, so reporting in on that. And my sabbatical was a little bit scattered, and so this presentation may be a little bit scattered, but I'm gonna to try to find a, a through line between the various things I was uh, looking at and, and, and uh, researching. Uh, some of them involved uh, laboratory experiments and education in, uh, in laboratory experiments. Some of it involved uh, history of experiments and history of engineering and physics. And then some of it involved just really diving in to, into a case study uh, and we'll get more into that, uh, but the case study on Joule's mechanical equivalent of heat. And then I'll try to tie all that together uh, using this case study to see how uh, we can use this to talk about, uh, yeah, the goals that we have in pedagogy and lab education. When I say, what can reenactment teach us about transforming goals for labs? It's really like, what can it teach me about transforming goals for labs? But maybe some of this generalizes uh, to you. So I'll start out with the provocative statement that I'll walk back uh, sort of carefully. But the statement is, is this, that labs uh, don't work. And this was the research that, that uh, that really caught my attention. This was from a couple of researchers, Holmes and, and Wyman in 2018. They published this study. And this, this uh, is a graphical representation of the mean lab benefit for a bunch of different introductory physics courses. And you can see that uh, on the y-axis there, that mean uh, lab benefit here, I can use this thing, um, it, it all sits at zero, uh, which, um, yeah, um, what is this study that was done? Well, it's actually uh, studies across a variety of the introductory physics sequence at three different schools, whole bunch of different instructors, thousands of students. And in these courses, mechanics and uh, E&M, so physics one and two here at EMU, um, these labs were optional, but the goals of these labs involved supporting the learning of, uh, of content of the associated lecture courses. And there was 
uh, as these researchers found, no statistically measurable lab benefit as measured uh, in the performance on final exams and, and with, with various uh, qualifications and all of that. And that really worried me um, when I saw that because my own course syllabus, my own number one course objective uh, used to be uh, the student will be able to empirically verify the selected laws of physics using scientific method. And if I see research that says there is no, uh, there is no benefit towards re reinforcing physics content, what good is labs? Are we all just wasting our time here? So um, maybe we should take a step back and ask, why do we have labs? Well, there's a long history of this. Um, probably, the, as far as I can tell, the first uh, um, introduction of labs happens in France right about the time of the French Revolution, actually in the midst of the French Revolution, 17, the, late, the late 18th century, um, and in the engineering curriculum that was developed. And uh, what, the, what the students did that were taking and studying engineering at that time was they would take two years of math and science, uh, physics and chemistry and, and, and all that sort of uh, stuff. And they would have large lectures. And then they would have uh, small breakout, breakout sessions with, with, uh, what, with, with drawing and with problem classes and with laboratories. And at least according to uh, Tamoshenko, this was probably the first time that laboratory work was introduced as part of the teaching curriculum. And if you ask uh, physicists or scientists in general, a lot of them will say, yes, this is an extremely important thing. The experimental aspect of science is its most distinguishing characteristic. Laboratory courses uh, are the backbone of the scientific curriculum. Whoops, uh, over here. Um, you have to not just hear about science, not just read about science, but you have to see and feel and hear this. And this is not just physics and not just engineering. This happens in, in related fields like chemistry. Uh, there's a statement here that the laboratory is a central place in the chemistry curriculum. It's the place where you learn to do chemistry. Um, and so a question is, what is distinctive about laboratory work that cannot be met elsewhere in the curriculum? Okay. So um, back to this, this uh, question about our, do labs work and, how, and, 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 and uh, other research. It's not just this one group that has done studies on this. So there's a series of educational surveys also around the same time period, also about 10 years ago, um, very large surveys, um, surveying student attitudes towards, uh, towards physics um, and how similar student attitudes were towards uh, quote unquote, experts in the field towards uh, people who were physicists. And there is this really, uh, really fascinating shift in, uh, and especially in these uh, first year courses, when the labs focused on doing content on, uh, on, yeah, reinforcing content that happens in the lecture, students walk away from labs becoming less expert-like in their beliefs. It's like, it's, 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 it's hurting them. It's not, it's not, it's not advancing them towards, uh, towards a goal. But there is a little bit of hope here in, in, the, in this uh, bar chart here on the far uh, right here. Lab courses that focused on skills that aimed at developing lab skills did not show this uh, same decline as far as, in fact, they show this increase, this slight uh, movement towards becoming more expert-like. And so that maybe gives us a little bit of a way forward. The problem with when you focus on just trying to reinforce concepts in labs is that uh, this is, is quite inefficient. Um, 
this is this is from the 60s here as a math uh, educator um, but talking about uh, what you're doing is, is really inherently trivial. You're mimicking the scientific method, wasting hours collecting all of this data that the teacher could have done in minutes. Uh, the teacher could have presented this in no time at all. And um, because of that, there's, there's, there's also this lack of engagement with the scientific process. Um, as instructors, you know all the details that go into the setting up of the lab and the, the choosing of this particular lab experiment. And there's the assumption that the student is also going through that entire process. And that, uh, that we can see is just not, just not happening uh, when you just have to follow a lab manual. You're not actually engaging in the scientific process. So the good news is there are approaches that have been developed over the last, and these are just three examples that have been developed over the last uh, about 10 years. Um, from various uh, physics researchers. Uh, one of these is investigative uh, science learning environment where uh, these, uh, the teachers ask the students to observe a very simple phenomenon, develop a couple of different hypotheses for this, and design experiments to test their predictions. Uh, a similar idea comes from uh, the structured quantitative in inquiry labs, which focus on the idea of iteration that uh, what you should be doing in, in your labs are evaluating models and especially uh, trying to understand experimental un uncertainty. And one that really appealed to me is this idea of single sentence labs, which recognizes that a truly authentic scientific experiment does not come with any instructions. And so uh, this particular person uh, uh, proposed that what you should do is just give a single sentence and then through, uh, through discussion, through working with the students, come about with a way to meet the, the research goal of this particular, uh, this particular lab. And we can see that all of these things that are focusing on skills, if we think about the breadth of tasks that we need to use in experimental science, all the cognitive tasks, uh, let's just focus here on the, the experimental physics uh, side, uh, you have to establish a research goal. You need to define criteria, determine feasibility, design the experiment, build the apparatus, and only then can you finally collect data and analyze the data and maybe then present the work and all that. And so um, when you focus on content in labs, uh, you basically maybe are like maybe these two steps and maybe if you have to write a lab report, you have a little bit of presentation there. You're missing the very large picture of what, uh, what goes on in, in, in experimental science. And very similar things hold for uh, engineering education as well. Um, so this was, this was uh, inspiring to me to, to read about uh, the, the various uh, skills uh, that, that we might have in experimental science. And so what I wanted to do was to dive a little bit more deeply into a case study of a seminal research experiment from the past sort of see if I can see these skills in action and, and maybe uh, ultimately learn to apply that uh, to uh, pedagogical labs as well. So, um, and the, the experiment I, I chose was uh, Joule's mechanical equivalent of heat. I'm fully aware of the danger of uh, uh, limiting science to like these solitary genius figures that are the, the, the people that advance science. That's not really the way science works but I'm gonna do that a little bit anyway. Uh, Joule was uh, born in the 19th century, born Christmas Eve, 1818, near Manchester, England. 
and uh, had not really a very healthy childhood. He had sort of a deformity in his spine, some physical limitations. Didn't really have formal schooling, but he did have a tutors um, that, were, that were quite good tutors, including, um, at least for a short period of time, John Dalton, uh, who um, you may know as a chemist who promoted the, uh, the atomic theory of gases. Um, and this is back when the atomic theory of gases was not, not uh, widely accepted. Jewell grew up uh, quite wealthy, in a wealthy family. His grandfather founded a brewery, and his father passed on to his father and later uh, passed on to him. And that was actually his full-time job, was, was managing the Jewell uh, Brewery. And so science was just merely a hobby that, uh, that he had. Um, he would do this you know, early in the morning or late at night after putting in, or in between, or on the other side of, of a full day um, of, of work. Family-wise, he married Amelia Grimes in 1847, actually right at the height of his uh, most productive science uh, period, and had three children, two who survived to adulthood. There's a really uh, fun story about Jules' honeymoon. Um, uh, right after marrying Amelia, he was hiking in Switzerland and uh, ran into William Thompson, who is known as also Lord, Lord Kelvin, and uh, they were on this, this trail, and, and Thompson uh, uh, observed uh, Jewel and, and Amelia like sticking thermometers into these waterfalls, one at the top and one at the bottom, trying to, trying to measure the temperature difference between the water at the top and the bottom. Um, he was unsuccessful at that, but it maybe goes to show you a little bit of the, the, the way that Jewel saw the world. He was constantly trying to quantify things, trying to measure things. Um, and yeah, and, 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 and yeah, that's, that's the way he, he viewed the world. Scientifically, uh, in the late 30s, early 40s, uh, Jewel was very fascinated by electric motors, and maybe some of this also ties in with the, the brewery here, uh, this idea that maybe you can use electric motors uh, um, in, in the brewing of beer. Um, and, and this is at the time when electric motors are first being developed, and so he did some experiments with that and, and came across a couple of uh, uh, important uh, relationships, one of them that the power output from a motor is equal to the product of the voltage and the current. Uh, that's a very familiar formula um, for those of us in, in the electrical world. He also came across something called Joule heating, which he noted that the heat produced um, with resistance is proportional to the current squared times the resistance. So again, we would call that a power output as well. Um, and so this, this is uh, Jewell in his 20s doing these sorts of experiments. And then in the 40s, in the 1840s, he did a series of experiments in electrical, chemical, fluid, and mechanical systems. And uh, these were the, this is the most important work. And so this series of experiments, increasingly precise experiments leading up to um, what I'm calling the mechanical equivalent of heat experiment, which is not one, but this whole series, um, is, is, is what he was working on at that, that particular time. And then after that, there's not as much that he does, and maybe we'll uh, come back to that. Um, but he does a little bit more collaboration with William Thompson, who, was a, who he considered a friend, uh, and did some development of some instruments. So it was not totally doing nothing, but um, the 1840s was really his most productive period. So this is the paper on the mechanical equivalent of heat. 
Um, and um, this is the paper from uh, published in 1850. And the big question that Jewell was trying to answer in this uh, had to do with this question about what is heat. And so at the time, heat was considered to be, most commonly was considered to be this fluid, this fluid that we call uh, caloric, this fluid that flows from hot objects towards cold objects. And we, we still have that language with us today, this notion of flowing um, from, from hot to cold. Um, but there was this other alternative viewpoint that Joule had become increasingly convinced of, was that heat is not about a fluid, but heat is about motion. And so you can see that even in this uh, particular thing. Heat is the very brisk agitation of parts of the object. And when our sensation is heat, that's nothing but motion. Um, at this time, uh, you know, energy is not a concept that's well understood. This particular paper is the turning point into the acceptance of energy, but that language is not available in physics at that time. Uh, and so um, Joule is, is, yeah, is trying to, trying to uh, come up with ways of describing what, what is this heat. So just to talk a little bit briefly about uh, what is in the paper, there's sort of roughly four parts in this paper. Uh, first, uh, Joule talks about the previous work on the th theory of heat, uh, references some other uh, previous uh, experiments that have been done. He uh, goes through a very detailed description of his apparatus, of the thermometers he uses and how he calibrated his thermometers, of the paddle wheel and the vessel, of the pulleys and the weight and the twine and all of the bits and bits and bobs that go into the, the building of his apparatus. He then uh, has the, the tables and the various things that he analyzes, the various ways that he analyzes the data, the corrections that he makes in his measurements. And then finally, uh, comes up with some summary and some conclusions. So just to give you a flavor of the type of writing that's in this paper, um, you see here is a little bit of the introduction um, talking about Count Rumford and Count Rumford's experiments um, that support Joule's idea that heat is about motion. So Count Rumford's experiments uh, had to do with a horse and a boring of a cannon and this thing was in water and these horses walked around for a long time and the water started to boil at some point. And it seemed like this, this heating up was inexhaustible. Like you could just keep heating it up forever and ever. And that doesn't really seem like a fluid that would run out, right? That really seems like, like motion. And Joule even like attempts to estimate what is the value that Count Rumford came up with, a, a value that he will compare to his own value. Um, here's an example of some of the description of the apparatus of his, his uh, very fine thermometers. And we should probably say these are probably the most precise thermometers in the world at that, at that particular point in time. Now he claims he can read these things, the gradations on these things, to one one hundredth of a degree Fahrenheit. Um, actually, he claims actually he can claims e even more than that. He claims one two hundredth of a degree Fahrenheit, uh, which is an incredible amount of precision that no one believes. Um, and and so yeah. Anyway, it's. It, all that to say, though, his, his, his thermometers were very, very precise. These were really good thermometers. And then there's this sort of exhausting description of what the apparatus looks like. Luckily, there is uh, figures as well 
um, to give us a little bit of a sense, and we can see the letters labeled on here. And then I have also listed here, or shown here, a few pictures of various different iterations of this paddle wheel device. Uh, the one on the left here is um, from an earlier iteration in the, the uh, about 1845, I want to say. Uh, this one comes from about 1847, 1848. And then this one here in the center actually comes um, from a, an experiment that came even later in the 1860s, 1870s. Then we said, uh, as I said, there's a listing of all the data that comes in, uh, all, the, all the raw data, essentially. Um, you can see here's his first series of experiments uh, with the weights of, that, that he used and the time that this took and the velocity that falls in every single experiment, um, the 40 different experiments that were listed uh, for this first series. And of course, there are five series of experiments. There's 100 different trials listed in this paper and all the various measurements that he made. So he's, Jewel is hiding nothing in, in, in this particular paper, um, unlike uh, certain uh, physicists nowadays, there's a big controversy in physics right now about room temperature superconductivity and the researchers not sharing their data. And uh, anyway, Joule is not, not in that, not that way. And then finally, there's the summary here. And so the summary is, hey, I did all these different experiments here. I average a whole bunch of stuff out. And look, I get the numbers that are essentially the same. And I did a bunch of these things, but actually I only consider this one the best one. This was the very best job that I did. This is my best uh, number that I get out of this, this 772.692. Okay. Um, so I was, I was inspired by the reading of this papers and this idea of, of reenacting old experiments by like really diving into papers to, to reenact uh, old experiments. And um, so I have a video here, actually, just a short video clip uh, that might give a little bit. Oh. Might give us a little bit of uh, help. Help you see, uh, give a little bit of sense of this. So there are various uh, researchers. So this is um, some experiment that was done in uh, an educational pedagogical experiment done in 2013, I believe, uh, in which a couple of researchers rebuilt the apparatus. Joel performed his experiments in the basement of his brewery. So they are in some basement somewhere. <laughs> Give some some stability to the temperature in all of this. You can see there's a careful careful measurement of temperature both within the apparatus and in the room. It 
It's not clear in the paper whether Joule had an assistant that helped him uh, perform this experiment, whether it was he did it alone or had an assistant. Um, although uh, people who have evaluated uh, this and have looked at the time that it takes for this to fall and to wind this all up say there's basically no way he probably could have done this by himself. <laughs> he almost certainly had another person in the room who was doing this winding up and helping out. So what's going to happen here is now these, when this is released, these weights will fall. This caused this spinning motion, and you can see it falls at kind of a nice steady rate, nice constant velocity, uh, not really an acceleration. There's a lot of friction involved in all of these uh, parts and all of these pulleys. And this motion, this taking this from high to low and this spinning, this friction, is going to cause a very, very slight change in the temperature. So Joule lets this fall, and then he repeats this 20 more times because, uh, yeah, it, uh, it's, it's such a small amount of, uh, of, uh, of temperature change for just a single one. So it takes him 30 minutes to do this entire experiment. Um, one time, and then he does it, of course, you know, 110 other times. Okay. So, um, I was, I was really fascinated by the idea of trying to reenact an experiment, but not that fascinated that I wanted to redo the experiment uh, 30 minutes at a time for, for all these sorts of things. So I thought what I would do was reenact the data analysis of the experiment. Uh, it turns out that actually takes a long time as well uh, to, figure, to figure some of these things out. But I was really interested in this number here that, that he reports, actually all the precision of these numbers, 772.692, because like we said, it's, it's basically a joke, right? Here's uh, uh, this commentary on this paper from 2015. At risk of criticizing the great experimentalist, this does seem a trifle optimistic. To, to report that many decimal places in, in this. And so I had this, this question that was in the back of my mind, could we use like modern statistics to quantify the precision of the results? Because we do have all the data. We do have the data from the experiments and controls. And let's, more specifically, what I wanted to do is I wanted to assume his measurements were actually like good measurements. Like we, I mean, he's, he's well-versed in this experiment, um, but what sort of trial-to-trial -trial variation do you have? What sort of, yeah, what sort of, uh, we might say, what is the, the spread of the distribution? What is the precision that he has in this experiment? Um, and there's a complication that, uh, that we have to deal with, and that has to do with the idea of heat transfer. So the temperature change in this water is not just due to the spinning of the paddle wheels, but due to a difference in temperature between the apparatus and the environment. So if you'll permit me to get a little technical for just a few minutes here and to put this into modern thermodynamics notation here. Um, in thermodynamics, we talk about the system and the surroundings. And we're interested in what is the energy change of the system. So this, this right here, U-thermal, is the thermal energy change of our system. In the, Joule's, in the case with Joule's experiment, we're talking about the fluid and the apparatus and the paddles and the thermometer, all this stuff there. And the thing that will change the thermal energy that will cause a delta on this is if we do work across the boundary or if heat flows across the boundary. Those are represented by W and by Q. 
Q. This is the first law of, thermo, uh, first law of thermodynamics, um, although it was not called that at that time. We also uh, call this conservation of energy. And the thing that Joule was trying to find, this letter J, this mechanical equivalent of heat, is, is simply a conversion factor. If we measure work in some units, like foot-pounds, like uh, Joule did, and we measure heat in some other units related to, to temperature and stuff, uh, we need some way to bring those two in line so that we can properly add them together. Okay? So putting all of Joule's text into a mathematical equation looks quite complicated, but this shortens up all of the, all of the paragraphs and paragraphs of, of approximations he did. But in the numerator, just, just really briefly, in the numerator here, he has this idea that the weight and the distance, which we would call today potential energy, is part of what goes into the system. But we need to reduce that uh, because there's friction, there's energy losses in that way, there's elasticity, of the string, uh, there's even a, a, a sense of kinetic energy, although it was not called that at that time, um, which Joule is aware of. And then in the denominator, uh, where we have uh, changes of energy and we're worrying about the heat transfer, uh, we have a heat capacity of our apparatus and we have temperature changes. And then we have other correction terms that Joule adds because of uh, well, the system and the surroundings are at different temperatures. And not only that, Joule is even aware that there's not, this is a not a linear increase, that there's a nonlinear change between these two temperatures. Um, but I was, I was this, this number right here actually is, is the one number in the whole paper that is not particularly justifiable as in, in my reading of the paper. It seems like a number that just actually comes out of nowhere. And so I was hoping there was maybe a better way uh, to deal with, with this. Um, and so uh, the, the approach I took was to apply Newton's law of cooling, which is a model for heat transfer, which says that the rate of heat loss is proportional to the temperature difference um, between the system and the surroundings. So uh, in short, if you have two things that are almost at the same temperature, the, the system will very, very slowly approach that final temperature. But if you have very, very cold water and a very warm room, that will much more rapidly increase. And so in the end, you don't get this straight line between the two, but you get this exponential curve between these two uh, in this transition here. Okay. Um, I'll just make an aside that I'm not the first one to think of using Newton's law of cooling uh, for a mechanical equivalent of heat, of heat experiment. Uh, this may be a familiar name uh, to, to some of you. John Horst is a, a former physics professor at, uh, at the time Eastern Mennonite College and published an article about a student lab on Joule's mechanical equivalent of heat where um, he found that if you use the Newton's uh, law of cooling approach with that, you improve the results. The challenge um, with, and the reason that in the literature I was unable to find anyone else who has taken this, this approach, is that to fit this sort of exponential curve, you need multiple data points. You need a time series of what's going on because you need to know is this a very fast change or is this a very slow change? And in Joule's paper, all we have is the commencement and the termination, the beginning and the end of the experiment. And so that, for a while, that was really a problem. I was not quite sure how to deal with that. And it actually took me a little while. 
um, until I realized that we have a whole bunch of control experiments where this apparatus just sat out in the room. And, um, and each of these experiments where this was just sitting out in the room had a different difference in temperature at the start and at the end. And so we can, we can plot all the data, we can look at the temperature rise when this thing is just sitting there and use that to come up with this parameter that we need to fit the shape of this curve appropriately. At least that was the idea. Um, I wanted to validate this approach. Luckily, Jewel did another experiment about 28 years later um, where he did calculate the mechanical equivalence of heat for each individual trial and then come up with an average. And so what we can do is we can take this average, take this uh, standard deviation, standard error, and um, compare the approach with, the, um, with Joule's uh, assumptions, Joule's approximations, and compare that with the heat capacity, um, the heat transfer uh, approach. And so these are the results. And I'll just, I guess I'll just focus here on this particular one. So this is the number reported in the paper, 772.72. In this later experiment, this would be the standard deviation of that. And when I took my model and I ran it with the same data, I was very pleased with how close those results, these results seem essentially identical and, and for all of the different experiments. Um, Jewel preferred to use um, these, per, these three experiments. He said these were his best experiments and that's how he came up with his final result. Um, but uh, nonetheless, uh, it doesn't particularly matter. You can take all of these things and, and, and get, get a good number. And so then here's the, the, final, the final big, uh, big result that, that, that I came away with. So over here we have the experiments um, um, from 1850, the first experiments, the ones I was interested in where we couldn't get, but we only had the average number. We didn't have any sense of the, the spread of the data. And um, now we do. Now we have the, the sense of the spread of the data. And if we compare the average and the standard deviation, 95% of the standard error of the mean, uh, we see that the number should be reported as 772.3 plus or minus 0.2 versus the number that he reported, 772.692. So he was, he was indeed a little bit optimistic in reporting that many decimal places. Um, but nonetheless, this is, I mean, this is like quite a good result, right? It's not like this huge, huge spread of data when they come up with this. Um, incidentally, you see how much better he got in the 30 years between these two runnings of these, approximately 30 years of the runnings of these experiments. Um, the scale on this particular, um, this particular chart here is half of the scale on this one, and yet you can still see that the spread is, is, is shrunk down quite a bit more. And so the uncertainty in this number is about one-fourth of the uncertainty in this number. This is just another uh, application of the model. You can see uh, the results here, in particular the results um, for the, the, the series of experiments that Jewel really preferred. Um, we got numbers that were quite good. So I guess I'm gonna try to like um, take, this, take us out of, out of uh, the, the technical side and move us back towards uh, labs just to note a few other things about, about Jewel. So there's this big gap between 1850 and 1878 
And um, you might ask, like, why, why did Joule stop doing science during this time period? And um, we, we may have this, when, when we think about people, we often don't think about people holistically. We often think about them in terms of their work for historical figures, right? And Joule had a series of personal tragedies uh, starting in about 1854, so about four years after this. Uh, first, his, his child died a few months old, and then his wife died uh, a few months after that. And uh, this was really tragic to him. Like it, it really caused, uh, uh, caused um, uh, deep concern with, for him. Uh, he sold his brewery. He became poor. Uh, he had quite poor health at that time period. And so um, he really backed off his scientific production. And likely, it's due to a lot of these, these issues. So what happened after, uh, after, the, after Joule's publication in, in, in 1850? What, hap what happened to the measurements of mechanical the mechanical equivalent of heat? It took a long time for people to get better numbers. Um, the, the, the number that is uh, most accepted today is 778. So Joule's number of 772 is, is quite accurate, but a little bit off from that. And it takes actually almost 50 years for someone to get a number uh, using this massive, massive steam engine before they can, they can improve upon Joule's methods. Even Joule himself, when he goes to this more precise thing, is not uh, necessarily more accurate in his measurements of the mechanical equivalent of heat. At the same time, um, as energy is becoming this, this concept in, uh, in, this accepted concept in science, uh, people are interested in introducing uh, the mechanical equivalent of heat experiment into laboratories. And so here are some examples, um, from one from 1875, the so-called uh, Peluge apparatus, which involves a couple of spinning cups and spinning this wheel and involves the friction uh, changing the temperature of the water. Uh, here's uh, an advertisement from 1905 in the Scientific American of a device that looks almost identical to the devices that we use nowadays that we have over just across the hallway in the physics lab, uh, which involves a weight and you spin and the friction uh, increases, increases the temperature of the water. So we see that, that um, companies are trying to take advantage of, of, of this, uh, uh, this experiment and trying to produce things that are simple and easy to use in labs. And um, of course, that's not, the, that's not the way Joule dealt with all of this, right? Uh, if, if I was to come up with some takeaways from the experiments related to the research process, um, I would say that like one of the things I discovered was that having a good experimental result really involves reworking and iterating upon experiments and building new apparatuses and better apparatuses. And when you have a device that you can buy from a company, you don't necessarily get that. It also requires really expert facility with the tools, with the measurement tools that you have. So in the 19th century, accuracy means uh, do science with care, have a lot of quality with your workmanship. Um, and uh, I would say also that another thing that I came away with was just the time and persistence it takes to get a good result, uh, the amount of repeatability and replication and, and large end that you need to get these very subtle, uh, subtle uh, 
changes in, in, in values. This sort of foreshadows modern physics with particle physics where you have billions and trillions um, and, and more uh, of, of events that you need to get to see, uh, to, to, to see the effects uh, reveal themselves. And if I take this back to what I should, what I should do in, in pedagogical labs, I, I, I came away with, with these, these things. The one, that I need to give more time for every experiment, that I, would, I need to give students a chance to become more expert-like in the working of their, the tools of the experiment. You can't just expect to, in two hours, sit down at, at a device and be able to get uh, good measurements. And you need more time to process the thinking. Now, can we do 10 years worth of processing of thinking the way Jewel did uh, and building of things? We can't do that. But maybe we can move at least a little bit closer towards that. And um, that if you want to have confidence in the generality of your result, you should use multiple sets, multiple types of measurement. That's something that, that uh, Jewel did. He had all these different series of experiments that were giving him a number that was all converging to this number. And that's what ultimately convinced others that, hey, this is a, this is a real thing, this idea of energy. And we can, we can um, you know, even take, we can have a slightly more modern approach. We can use statistics. Uh, we don't have to st stick just to the old methods, but that's a possibility. Um, so I made a few adjustments to my own uh, introductory labs. I cut the number of labs that we have. We've gone from eight one and two week labs to four labs. It gives us a chance to take measurements and discuss and try to improve these experiments. And we focus more on laboratory skills and measurement tools. Um, for example, the projectile motion lab used to be uh, one of the, the, the first goal was to predict the range of a shot. And there was a nice three-page procedure, very well thought out. Uh, all these tables, if you take these data, you'll get the right result. And now, I just asked the question, is drag negligible for projectile motion? And we have to talk about that. And we have to figure out what, uh, what is an answer for that question. What are the data sets we need to answer that? And we, we, it feels like we do more science. Is this working? I don't have data on that yet. I can't tell you. Um, I wish I had an answer on that. Um, I have some thoughts about how to quantify that. Um, but it's to be determined whether this is a better approach. But anecdotally, anecdotally um, I'm enjoying it uh, thus far. So to summarize, uh, just to, to wrap things up, uh, research shows that introductory physics labs, if you focus on reinforcing content, uh, you don't see in course, increased course performance. But if what you focus on are broader research skills, that may be a better approach. Uh, the data that I looked at was specifically for introductory physics labs. Whether that generalizes, uh, I don't know, but um, it, it might. Um, uh, for me personally, I found that deep engagement with uh, historical experiments was, was inspiring um, for the various research skills that that we could use um, and ways that we might update those as well. And then finally, I, I found that James Jewell did run a very accurate and a very precise series of experiments in the 40s, but it was only three digits of, of precision, not six. And in fairness to Jewell, his very final sentence says 772. He does not include all of the decimal places. So uh, I'd like to thank you for your time, and uh, I'm happy to take questions and comments now. Mike, since we're streaming this, people will hear your question this way.
you don't mind letting us know who you are as well. Uh, is there any indication that the uh, quantitative aspects of labs get in the way of the conceptual understanding? <laughs> um, uh, I would say yes. Um, that is that is something to be concerned about, right? Because uh, in sort of the sometimes we're called cookbook labs, right? Where you take data and you just kind of chug through the calculations and all of that. Yeah, you can totally miss the conceptual uh, along the way. So. Um, yeah, so Jules' approach is a very quantitative approach, right? That's, that's sort of a shift that's happening in science at, the, at this particular time um, and is the way a lot of science is done. But yeah, we, we can't lose the, 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 the deeper meaning behind things when we do labs. Yeah, and the reason I'm asking the question is because I'm reading a book on um, Michael Faraday, Michael Faraday uh -huh. and he... Um, he was primarily like an experiential learner and theory creator, and he got a lot of criticism at the time for not uh, being a mathematician. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would. I, uh, yeah, I mean, Faraday is like considered one of the very best experimentalists that ever lived, and and was right about a lot of things. And his theories, some of his theories, were not well accepted until Maxwell comes along later and puts some mathematical uh, meat on those bones. Um, but yeah, I mean, there there are multiple ways of there are multiple ways of doing science. Some quantitative and some more qualitative. Yeah. Uh, thank you, Danny. I'm Joel Crable. For those of you who probably don't recognize me, I'm a Heston College Engineering and Physics professor. So uh, we're great to be on campus with some engineering faculty and students. Um, and thank you so much for your presentation here. Um, one of my questions is kind of what's next. So, uh, yes, you've done this great work on, on equivalent. Are there other ones, other experiments that you can point to and say, I'd love to spend a deep dive into, into this one or that one or, or what? I know that you had a good reason to go into this one, but I'm curious what, are there other ones out there that you would love to, to get into as well? Yeah, I mean, I have thought about that a little bit. Is there is there a next one? It's in some ways this one is is unique in the sense that all the data is right there, and in, in with other experiments, experimentalists were not so detailed in in what they leave us. Um, you may have to dive into lab notebooks and that sort of thing to get the raw data. Um, I guess I would say, uh, in in response to that, for for me, what's next is is thinking more back towards the beginning of of um, what I was talking about with what are the skills that we want to be teaching in lab uh, and, and thinking about the pedagogy uh, aspect of this. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd love to hear suggestions. If anyone has suggestions on, on what's the next thing that we should be doing a deep, deep dive into. This is a pretty good time period for this because statistics, as we think about it, doesn't come along until the early 1900s. And so prior to that, there's a lot more winging of things. Uh, with numbers, so, yeah. You mentioned uh, Ben Bontrager Singer, I'm a senior in mechanical engineering. Um, we did this experiment in our thermodynamics class, and I guess I'm just kind of, you mentioned like that you feel like some anecdotal evidence that maybe that was a benefit, um, but like you mentioned, like what are your plans to kind of quantify that or um, 
actually like evaluate your own course uh, developments? For sure, yeah, that's a great question. Um, yeah, so um, the researchers who, at the very beginning, whose work I pre pre presented at the very beginning, uh, who said, you know, labs don't work, then of course their next step is to figure out what, how can we quantify things that do work in lab. And so they've developed a, an instrument uh, that measures uh, approaches, quantitative approaches towards laboratory experiments. And so my hope is to start using that in my, in my class as sort of a pre-test, post-test um, across the, the Physics One labs. Um, and uh, I, I will admit to my own failings of uh, providing the pre-test this, this current year and then failing to, to have everyone take the post-test. And so I don't have any statistics on actually whether that worked or not. So next year, we'll find out. <laughs> um, Seven seventy-two foot-pounds per degree Fahrenheit. What's that in like real units? <laughs> uh, yeah, seven seven seventy-two. So, so this is the specific heat, uh, uh, specific heat of water, uh, which we might know as what four point one eight six. So, yeah, I mean, this number actually is not a constant, it turns out. Um, it turns out that there is a temperature dependence of this number, uh, and all these experiments were done at this particular roughly 55 to 60 degrees. Uh, but yes, what, what he was doing was measuring the heat capacity of water. And, um, and so, yeah, we have different, different units and SI units, but this would be the British uh, imperial units version of that. Thanks, Danny. I'm curious if other science professors who do labs, or maybe the data was just about physics classes, if they were, if they're as concerned about this as you are, <laughs> and what other physics professors are doing, like when you go to physics conferences, like do people, is this like? or whenever the study, was it high on the agenda? What are we gonna do? And what have others come up with to address this issue? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, yeah, I mean, that's a great question. Yeah, no, I'm not the only one uh, that, that is concerned about this. And it's not just physics. Uh, I've seen it in some of the uh, engineering uh, literature. I've seen it in some of the chemistry literature. This question, like, how do we do labs better? Um, probably, uh, probably the it, pedagogy, pedagogically, it, it, at least as far as I can tell, it first arises in the 60s and then kind of gets suppressed for a while. And then there's a real flowering of it in the 90s and 2000 and stuff like that. What other people are doing are, is this, this, uh, this question about what skills can we develop? So can we do, um, if we jump back um, all the way to, um, all the way to these cognitive tasks. Can we do a lot more of having students do experimental design, um, trying to set up a hypothesis, trying to, to move through the whole, uh, the whole scientific method, I guess, uh, is, is the way I would say that. Um, realizing that that takes a lot of time to do that, that you can't just do things the same way where you, you can come in one week and out the next week. 
And so um, you really have to think of labs as almost this separate, separate being than the lecture course. It's not there just to reinforce the course content, but it's there to teach you a different set of skills. And so that's what a lot of the physics researchers, um, these, uh, these being th just three of, of, of many of these that show up in, in physics pedagogy, pedagogical journals. Um, but yes, there are a lot of other researchers that are, that are everyone's kind of doing their own thing a little bit, right? As here's what I did, tried, here's what I tried, here's what I tried. Um, but a lot of these are, are coming to similar conclusions that we should be iterating with our experiments, we should be testing hypotheses, and we should be giving them short things where they can explore. Um, but yeah. Uh, thanks, Danny. I'm Mark Son from History. So um, my interactions with your teaching methodologies have been when you've come into honors classes and talked about things. And one of the things I thought you did that was so successful in those was talked about the thought experiment, which is in some ways a very different way to do a lab. Um, and those to me seemed really successful and much closer to maybe some of the things that you just showed on that last slide that it's the, the cognitive task of putting together, if I want to know X, what could I do to set up to figure that out? Has that been, is that something that produces potentially better results? In other words, is it the act of doing the lab or is it the, the process of thinking through the lab that would ultimately be the more, yeah. the, yes, the more pedagogically useful? Yeah, uh, uh, that's a great question. I haven't thought about that. Um, my hunch is it's the act of thinking that's the important thing, right? Um, that it's not just the, the 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 doing of things. I mean, for sure, in in physics and in other sciences, there is the there's the theoretical strain and there's the experimental strain, and learning to do the manipulations of experiments and becoming really good at that is, is one way to be a physicist and to be a very excellent physicist and learning to do the theoretical thinking, the, the thought experiments, and if this, then that uh, is, is another way. And, and the two can complement each other, I would, I would guess. Um, and I haven't thought about what it would mean to do a thought experiment labs, um, but I, I like that idea. <laughs> yeah. One more, perhaps? And maybe we're finished. <laughs> okay. Thanks. <laughs>